Spencer, we have the Giro d'Italia coming up in a couple of weeks. And you know what the perfect companion reading is for the Giro? It's the Velo News Giro Guide. Oh, yeah. We, um, we Every year we put out the official guide for the Giro d'Italia. It has all of the teams, the riders to watch, stages, profiles, all that good stuff, in addition to lots of stories to take you through this year's Giro d'Italia. So, for instance, this year we sat down with the main man himself, Mr. Tom Dumoulin, for an exclusive interview to ask him all sorts of questions about his um, not great Giro preparation. If you, can, if you remember, he was like crashing a lot. Dane's shaking his head. You remember, what, what, what did Tom Dumoulin go through? He went through some mechanical issues and some crashing issues, like three races in a row, and a lot of histrionics on the, on the television, just flailing his arms and being very upset. Yeah, which is understandable. Yeah, so we got uh, Tom to open up about some of that stuff. And we have several other great stories, including the backstory of how the Giro d'Italia came to Jerusalem for the first three stages. So check it out right now. It's the Giro d'Italia issue. We'll be on newsstands soon. And also, Spencer, gear guide. Gear guide. Yeah, buyer's guide's out there. Go check out the Fellow News Buyer's Guide. And we've got a lot of that content online as well, fellownews.com. If you are trying to buy a bike right now, you got to check out our buyer's guide because it tells you all about the great bikes for 2018. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, it's the Fellow News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here with Dane Cash. Hello, Dane. Hello, Fred. And Spencer Paulison. Hi, Spencer. Hey, good to be back. It's been a while since we've been in the studio. It's true. We have been on the road. Spencer, you were traveling. Mm. I was traveling. We were both at the Sea Otter Classic this past weekend out in Monterey, California. Spencer, you got a little bit of sun. So did you, Fred. Yeah. Yeah. This is fun, guys. You guys got a lot of sun. I didn't get a whole lot of sun. Dane didn't get much sun. Colorado, no. Oh, you had to stay here in Colorado. Yeah, geez, guys. We had an awesome time at Sea Otter. Uh, in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about some of the tech the tech we saw. But um, we have to talk about Sea Otter because Sea Otter produced, I think, perhaps the most exciting race of the entire weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to talking about Liege, Bastogne, Liege, and Tour de Gila, and some of the other races that went on this past weekend. But first, we must talk about cycling's marquee race of the weekend. And that was the e-bike challenge. American Monument. <laughs> At Sea Otter Classic e-bikes, blah, 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 blah. Because Spencer raced in the e-bike challenge. I sure did. It was uh, it was pretty fun, actually. I'm not going to lie. All right, give us, give us the rundown. The way I've been describing it to everyone is that it is this, it's a similar sort of effort level and speed to a cyclocross race, except you're on one of these big mountain bikes with full suspension and real grippy tires, and you're kind of ripping around, run, run, trashing through some rock gardens and stuff like that. So it's a pretty fun way to go as far as I'm concerned. And it, it's definitely not easy either. You're, you're working. And and also to clarify, you know, just for, for those who aren't as familiar with, with how e-bikes work, there's a lot of them out there. This particular race, you have to only use what's called a class one e-bike. And that means you got to pedal it to get the motor to kick in. And then once you get up to 20 miles per hour, that motor kicks off. And it's pretty noticeable. You realize you're still on a 40 or 50 pound bike with big mountain bike tires. And 
that's when uh, that's when it starts to get really painful. The fun thing about these e-bikes is that you can dial up the uh, assist level to go from like, oh, a couple of extra horsepower all the way up to like Nino Scherter World Cup speed where right. you're like soft pedaling and just, just getting totally I, carried around. I mean, I think you might be discounting how strong Nino can be in some of this stuff. But yes, it does. Like the, the one I was using, I was riding uh, the new BMC Speed Fox. Um, it's, it's, it's more like a little more of a cross country style. This one had three settings. It's like the, the Shimano, uh, the newest Shimano drivetrain and it's so it's like an eco and then a trail and then the boost which is the super fast one and it just sort of if you're going for a long ride you probably shouldn't be on boost because you're gonna run out of battery and end up with a super heavy bike but it was like a 20 25 minute race so boost all the way baby so spencer's burying the lead spencer how did yes. you do how did you do in the uh, e-bike you know race I, you know i get embarrassed it's, i was second wow it so was exciting wow, um man. i feel pretty good about myself because i was second to a guy who is ostensibly a professional e-bike racer that's right folks you heard it here there first is a thing there yep. is a professional e-bike racer out there in the world right this uh this guy javier from france he's sponsored by high bike um i actually talked to him quite a bit the morning of the race and he's he's an interesting character he comes from a background of racing mountain bikes quite a bit just normal mountain bikes not e-mountain bikes uh, enduro that type of thing I wanted to try something different and e-bikes were coming up in europe and decided to get on board with that and I, it's insane how prolific that these races are there's literally you know any of these races you go to in france there's an e-bike category that you could do and most of them are a little more in the enduro style where they will be just timing you know segments that are a, sort of a net descent there's a lot of pedaling in between some you know some uphills here and there but it's mostly a descent so that's kind of his main focus but he did also say that they have some wacky endurance events where you, you have specific feed zones where you can get a replacement battery and you're like oh, you right right around to the, you know you're doing that you're being real careful with how you econo economize your uh your battery usage and stuff like that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brave new world out there. But um, the, the French people, they do like their e-bikes. And they're very permissive about it, which I asked him. I was like, well, hey, what do you say to people who are, uh, who are you know, critical of e-bikes and say they shouldn't be on trails, that sort of thing. And it's just like that French attitude where it's like, hey, you know, it's okay. Everyone... You just, you could do what you want, you know, as long as you're, you know, everyone's kind of respectful of each other and they do their thing and that's that. There's a, you know. Everybody does it, Pierre. Yeah. It's a, it's a different sort of culture around it. So yeah. it's interesting. Um, and like I said, the race was, was damn fun, but, uh, I probably wouldn't be doing an e-bike race every, every weekend. Yeah. Poor French guy looks back and sees the dude who was interviewing him earlier that day, chasing him down in the professional e-bike race. He definitely did not see me. That dude got the whole shot and he was long gone. And the weird thing too about these races is given what I'm saying about that sort of 20 mile per hour shutoff, it, it sort of creates a, a racing dynamic. That's, it's almost like a single speed race from my experience doing some single speed cross where you kind of have a speed governor and it makes it a little more difficult to, to, to shut down a gap to somebody and chase, chase them back or something. It kind of things sort of level out and stabilize and it, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to be able to, uh, you know, put in a huge effort to catch them. I will be watching zero e-bike races when they are in when they are eventually televised. Oh, quick poll: Which would you rather watch, uh, an e-bike e-mountain bike race or an online uh, Zwift race? 
Ooh. Ooh. Tough one. Wow. If you're racing, Spencer, whichever one you're wearing. The bang your head against oh, a wall really Olympics. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was the e-bike race. Spencer Answer did it. Answer the question, Fred. Oh, what would I rather Come on. watch? Don't dodge the question. Oh, e-bike race all the way. E-bike? Yeah, because okay. it's IRL, man. Like, I, think, I want some IRL bike racing. I think it's a little closer for me, but I'd still do the e-bike too, I think. Yeah. I would go with the virtual racing, provided they implemented some of my suggestions, which are like the Mario Kart oh, stuff. The Puka shells and whatnot. Yeah, that, well, in that, that case. That would definitely, that would, I think... Make it, I think it'd be, it's, it's, it's a tough choice. Yeah. Well, someday when it's on, we can all talk about way back when. The Ocho. The Ocho. That's a race to e-bike. Uh, no, that was not the marquee race that happened uh, this weekend. Of course, that was Liege Beston Liege, La Doyenne, the longest and oldest of the classics and the final Ardennes classic, won by Mr. Bob Jungle's Jungle Bob himself. Bob of the Jungle has been crushing races for years now, and he crushed this one good, the proverbial knock it out of the park. So, Dane, why don't you give us a rundown? How the heck did Jungle Bob escape with Liege best on Liege? Yeah, Bob of the Jungle with a really well-timed move, and he pretty much, he played to his strengths. I mean, he's a guy who has a big motor. He's a, always been a time-trialing talent, so the only way that he was going to win this race, especially with a guy like Alejandro Valverde lurking, was to go from a, a ways out, and that's exactly what he did. So... Race starts out, there's a big breakaway as always. They're slowly getting pegged back with uh, UAE doing a lot of the work, which is a little bit unusual. You would have expected them to just let Movistar kind of handle that or Quickstep handle that. Dan Martin maybe was on a good day. He was. We'll get to that in a moment. Dan had some some frustrations. Uh, but yeah, so once the break was was uh, was in their sights, they're hitting those final climbs basically. And, and um, they go over the Rochefoucauld, which is a tough one. And uh, Jungle's kind of attacks going down the Rochefoucauld, and there was a bit of hesitation uh, in the group, and then he was gone, and they didn't really ever see him again. Uh, I think, on on the one hand, he does have this big engine. Nobody else in that main group up there was was even close to him in time-trialing ability, so he didn't have any really big engines to run him down, but it was a pretty sizable group, so you did kind of expect, I certainly expect he was going to get reeled back in, but uh, Julian Alaphilippe being kind of lurking there in the group. I think a lot of riders were worried that if they brought Jungles back, they'd just have to deal with Alaphilippe. And, and yeah, he managed to, to stay away. We, you mentioned Dan Martin, by the way. He had a puncture at like the most inopportune oh, possible time. Bummer. Poor guy. Uh, and then uh, Mike Woods and Roman Bardet, when it was really clear that Jungles was, was going to win, uh, Woods and Bardet jumped away to uh, battle for the other two spots on the podium. And... Uh, and they were successful in their uh, in their endeavor. Woods took the took the second place finish, which was pretty awesome, by the way. Looked really good in that sprint. Oh, yeah, Canada! He did. He oh, did. oh, Canada! Hey, eh? Sorry to beat you. I just need to kind of win a second place here. <laughs> he did a really nice job, though. And I think Bardet sort of was accepting of it because typical out, Frenchman. Yeah, yeah. Right, in, right in that final corner, it was pretty clear. Bardet was like, "Okay, third's better than not third, so <laughs> I'm just going to take that." Uh, but yeah, so Alejandro Valverde did not win Liège. That's the big news story there. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe, though, came in fourth and celebrated his teammate Bob Jungles' win. So just basically, long story short, another quick step victory this classic season, as we've talked about uh, eight, nine times so far this spring. All of the races, quick step wins them all. Pretty much. So guys, the first thing I want to talk about is the nature by which Jungle Bob took this win. So as you mentioned, Dan, he attacked over the Rochefoucauld, it, almost 20K out. So this was a long-range Liège. We haven't seen a long-range Liège in a while. In fact, the last real true long-range Liège was 2009, which is the race I was actually at, when Andy Schleck went at the base of the Rochefoucauld, got a huge gap, 
And despite the efforts of the Chase group, who were really pulling quite hard, um, he just continued to grow that gap. Another Luxemburger. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. He's quite strong. And, you know, one of the talking points we've had around Liège and the the Ardennes in general is that how they're kind of boring in this, quote unquote, cleaner era, you know, as opposed to the go-go EPO and blood doping era where people seemingly had endless amounts of strength. So to see Jungle Bob go so strong and grow this gap and manage to hold it away. There was part of me that was a little, I wouldn't say skeptical, but it was like, oh, this is this is a nice vintage of 2000. This is a mid-2000s vintage Liège. But I think as viewers, we can look at the situation of what was going on behind and really come up with a tactical explanation for why Bob Jungles was able to survive. You know, there were strong riders back there, but it really seemed like they just couldn't get their act together. Yeah, there was not a whole lot of cooperation, really. Uh, and I, we already we pointed out the Valverde, Alaphilippe there. Nobody wants to bring those guys to the line. But, you know, also, Bob Youngle's top 10 Grand Tour finisher twice in, I mean, two times in the last two years. So there's a lot of talent there. So what I want to know is, did all these guys just, like, go out on a long ride the day that Tour of Flanders was on TV and just not watch Tour of Flanders? That's a good Because question. this is a quick step... 101. This yeah. is what they did at Tour of Flanders. They sent Nicky Terpstra up the road. They had Philippe Chaubert waiting behind. And it's like, uh, yeah, that's what happened. That's that's why they win all these races is they can keep doing that and nobody covers the move. It's like, just send somebody to cover him. Anybody. It doesn't even have to be your teammate. Just somebody. Yeah. I thought that Movistar should have saved at least some firepower because they had Mika Landa in that race and they were doing a lot of work earlier on. And you would have thought that maybe if they had a Mika Landa around to follow Bob Youngles or somebody then Alain Valverde might have been able to sprint like he was hoping to do. No, I was surprised too because there were multiple teams that had two or more riders in that front group when Jungles made his move. Uh, Bahrain Merida had two riders. Movistar had two riders. Mitchelton Scott. The list goes on. There were multiple teams. And so I thought, okay, he's going for the early move. Time to start wasting some riders. You know, put Jack Haig on the front put Mika Landa on the front, anybody to try and peg this back. But I don't know if it was a case of riders just being fatigued. Or one thing I was thinking about is since big long range attacks haven't really succeeded at Liège in 10 years, maybe just everyone assumed, oh, this is going to come back together. Yeah, somehow it's going to come back together and Valverde is going to make his move. And, you know, we're going to be up that slow drag to Ons doing the same thing we do every year. I almost wonder if it was just almost a, well, this is how Liège normally goes, so it's going to happen type mentality. Here's an alternate take. Bob Youngles was just camouflaged because mm. he was wearing his Luxembourg champions jersey. And maybe yeah. people didn't realize, oh, they didn't see you. It's actually a quick step guy, but he's got that weird Luxembourg jersey where you're like, they thought that, it was... is that the French one? No, no, it's not the French. It's Is it the, and you the know. Luxembourg national selection sent a guy off the road. Yeah, Nobody there, had to worry about something. it. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's, I, I think it was sneaky. I think they knew. Well, as always, we were gifted the wonderful scene of seeing the Peloton scream through the rusty pipe factories and um, soot um, repositories that are there on the outskirts of Liège. They went past the world's ugliest soccer stadium and then up the long, painful straightaway where sometimes people dress like panda bears or um, Chicago uh, bears, bears, bears player. Yeah, bears what was that all about? I saw some photos online of some guy running behind him dressed as Chicago Bears players a few years back or the pimp of Liège. 
Yeah. Like, what's going on with these guys that dress up like pimps and carry doggies and mm-hmm. run by the Peloton? Local, local flavor. Local yeah. flavor. We've had a lot of stories on Didi the Devil, who's always at the Twitter France, but I don't. I've never seen an expose on this this runner at uh, Liege Bastogne Liege. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, he's out there. Well, but the panda bear wasn't wasn't didn't have much to cheer about though with Dan Martin yeah. missing out on the poor the, poor the, panda the selection there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer, and that's another bummer for Dan Martin, whose UAE debut has not been stellar so so gonna be a lot of pressure on him for the tour de france um here's a question guys did anybody screw up yeah a lot of people movistar for me a little bit screwed Uh up you have valverde you got the 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 big favor for that race you should be up there surrounding him someone someone's got to go as jungles i guess i said this already and then like so many of those guys in that group i'd say would stand a chance of beating him in the sprint you know, Mike Woods included, who had a great race. It's like there's a lot of guys there who are not necessarily amazing sprinters, but Bob Youngles isn't exactly a fast man to begin with. I think Fred had a really good point, though. I mean, if you're Mike Woods, you if I'm Mike Woods, I would certainly assume that Youngles is going to get caught, and I have a much better chance just waiting for that to happen uh, because that's just how this race goes. The Youngleses get caught, and then the Valverdes go on to sprint. So I would, I feel like a lot of those guys probably thought, what's the point of going? Somebody's yeah. going to take him back that's at some fair. point. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Let's talk about Mike Woods, okay? He made his World Tour debut a few years ago. We still talk about him as though he's a rookie, although he's been top 10 at a Grand Tour now. So I think we can officially not refer to Mike Woods as a rookie and every amazing accomplishment that he has is like, oh, just get his feet wet, eh? Oh, he's just that newbie Canadian, doesn't know what he's doing. Runner, runner turned cyclist. Runner turned cyclist. I think we can say like, no, he's an awesome cyclist. Like between him and Primoz Roglic, it's like, okay, we can stop talking about how they used to do other stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The ex-ski jumper turned cyclist. The the, the ex-runner turned cyclist. Yeah, Allison Dunlap used to be a soccer player and then she became (laughs) the best mountain biker ever. Yeah, so Mike Woods. You're dating yourself, Fred. Ex-runner. Total badass. Um, what do we think about this performance? He said afterwards online that he felt he he felt like he was lighter than in years past, which is oh my gosh, he's like the thinnest dude That's ever. Concerning, very yeah. concerning. Go he, eat go eat a burrito or something, Mike Woods. Jeez, take but it easy. What does this performance tell us about his potential? I mean, are we should we be thinking of him as more of an Ardennes guy than a Grand Tour guy? I actually think uh, we haven't seen enough of him in either race to make a judgment, but he really, when he first kind of emerged as somebody that was turning heads, it was as this punchy kind of guy. who, And that's what you would generally expect to see doing well at Liège. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to be a Grand Tour contender. But I think that 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 punchiness is the the first thing that really put him on the map. Yeah, from the get go, he's been good for Flash. Flash is a great race for him, and um, so I'd say I, I, I would agree. Th- I would agree with Dane that he's an Ardennes rider first and a Grand Tour rider second, and in both cases, plenty of potential. It's just the talk, the the clock's ticking a little. He's he's into his thirties now, so we'll see. Yeah, he does he does have I think uh, a chance to do well. I mean, this this upcoming Giro, we're going to see what what he's been doing this offseason. He he talked a little bit about uh, trying to work on his time trial and and get better at that aspect of his game because that's kind of the missing the one missing thing for him is is uh, doing a good time trial, not losing a big chunk of time. So. I mean, we're only going to have to wait about a month to figure out just what Mike Woods is, is worth in the uh, Grand Tours. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see how he does it this year's Giro, although part of me wonders if he really is better suited for the Welta. I mean, so many of these Welta stages finish with a, uh, you know, a Mur de Huy type 
awful leg cracking cross your eyes type climb and he seems to excel on those so you know it'll be interesting to see how he does in the meat grinder that is the Giro with these big long just lung busters um but maybe he's a guy that we could see pop a podium at the welta someday yeah i've always thought the welta is a better race for him too yeah i think the skill set definitely although i do think we we haven't really seen it Full, I don't think we can make a really great judgment just because he has kind of come to the sport so late in life that you know he could still have those kind of untapped talents that we haven't really seen yet. Like maybe he's not a terrible time trial so if he actually works on it. Mm, maybe he can sing, eh? He can play some hockey. <laughs> no, that's a, he actually. I feel like I read an interview with him a few years ago where he specifically was like, "I don't want to talk about hockey. I've never liked hockey. Just because I'm Canadian, I'm not into hockey." The so, one Canadian who doesn't so like hockey. Maybe he likes the Raptors. Maybe he's more of an NBA guy. I have to ask him all about hockey and maybe Tim Hortons he, next time yeah, I talk to him. Maybe he's a former uh, Expos fan rooting for the nationals now baseball go expose yeah i don't know uh moving on you know before the race andy hood wrote a great piece a commentary piece talking about how to fix liege beston liege you know with the premise being that liege has become boring because of the long painful climb up the Côte de saint nicolas and then the run into ans and he said why don't you just finish it right downtown in liege proper so that the uh, rocha Faucons is a little closer to the finish line makes it a little more selective um i don't know what do we think about this should liege consider changing its course I don't have a problem with it, uh, changing its course and going back to being actually Liege-Bastogne-Liege. Just for the sake of having the race finish where it says it does is kind of nice. But we did see this year that maybe that's not necessary and maybe we're just kind of waiting for Valverde to get old. I mean, maybe that, that could be the main problem that, we, that we've been having the last couple of years, just that Valverde is too good and that's kind of dampened the racing a little bit. But maybe now that he's getting up there in the years, things don't really... Ha- maybe you don't need a course change. Uh, the old Valverde Fondo. That's yeah. Right. He's yeah. going to have to retire the Valverde Fondo. We well, could do e-bike races. Yeah, that's true. He would be so good at e-bike races. Um, I'm with you. You know, I, I I do kind of like the finish. I mean, I give it a hard time because of all of the broken down factories and gross industrial setting and then that long drag to ons. But like I said, I love seeing the people run alongside it. I love... Um, knowing when attacks, you know, having a familiarity with a race so that you do kind of know when an attack or a bridging move has the ability to do it and when not. So I say let's hold it for another couple of years. I like the finish the way it is because it gives us something to complain about. Mm, that's and, true. Uh, you know, takes. I mean, it's, it's nice to have uh, nice to have that waiting for you at the end of the Ardennes. You can start complaining about ons. Oh, Talk man. about the McDonald's, the McDonald's that's right along the finish. And, so gross. Yeah. God. So, see, I mean, it's just, you know, this, these things write themselves. Uh, that was Liege Best on Liege. Guys, in the women's race, Liege Best on Liege, again, Anna Vanderbregen, solo breakaway, going on to win, show of dominance. I mean, we, I mean, we should just say it. We're getting to the point where this is near historic domination. I mean, it is historic because it's only, you know, these races haven't only been going on. This block of racing with women's Flanders and women's Amstel and women's all these races have, has only been around for a few years. But Anna Vanderbregen is, yeah, she's onto something special this year. And super versatile, too, because you, you look at on the men's side, a lot of the times the riders who we consider dominant, they're dominant, but maybe in their in their one thing that they do, like sprinting or climbing. Anna Vanderbregen was second at the individual time trial world champions last, last year. She now won Flanders. She's won Liège. It's a pretty much every single thing other than like a pure sprint. She's dominating. Dane, I think she read the piece that you wrote about the uh, perceived value of the women's Peloton, and we had her listed number two. Maybe Ooh. so. 
riding with a chip on her shoulder. Maybe so. Yeah, she obviously read that and is like, I'll show you, Dune Gears. Yeah, apparently. Bull- bulletin board material. Yeah. Well, sorry to the rest of the women's peloton if I spurred anything by writing that. Darn it, Dane. Yeah. Why'd you have to go and do that? Sorry, yeah. Gosh. Uh, but anyway, kudos to you, Anna Vanderbregen, for again, totally dominating. Guys, before we get on to the next segment of the show, again, we talked about it at the top of the show, we have two great issues out right now. We have our Giro d'Italia guide and the annual Vela News Buyer's Guide. The, the, the Vela News Buyer's Guide this year, Spencer, we put a gravel bike on the cover. We sure did, and I wrote it. It's a cool bike. Yeah. What, uh, what well, do you say the significance of putting a gravel bike on the cover? Yeah, I think it, uh, gravel is still a small and growing part of the bike industry, and percentage-wise, it might not necessarily be moving the needle as much as mountain bikes or road bikes just, just because it's still an up-and-comer, but it is hot and everyone's talking about it when we were at sea otter a lot of the real influencers that i was talking to were all about dirt gravel some of that's just wanting to get off of busy roads some of it's wanting to explore new routes they're fun bikes they're cool bikes they're different uh you know it's it's like there's there's still going to be lots of people who love riding road who love riding mountain bikes but we all like new stuff and you know the n plus one rule of bikes will forever I think, be our guiding light. Just got to have that one more bike. That's right. There you go. Uh, All right, guys. Let's get back to it. You know, the other piece of news that broke since we last chatted, oh, happened to break on Thursday afternoon when we were head down trying to put together the June print issue of Vela News. We were in final edits. And I was really busy preparing for my e-bike race. That's true. I had my legs up. I was doing my compression wear. Mm -hmm. Had all sorts of supplements. When all of a sudden, news flashes across across the Twitter sphere that our good friend, Mr. Lance Armstrong, has settled his fraud case with the federal government. This was the potential $100 million fraud case with the U.S. government. Settled it for $5 million bucks. Is he our good friend? Yeah, he's great. We love Lance. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he settled it for $5 million bucks plus $1.65 million, which will go to pay off the legal fees of Mr. Floyd Landis. And... With this news, we can put a nail in the, oh, geez, eight-year case, whistleblower case that Floyd had originally brought that the U.S. government had then um, started. You know, there were times in this case when we really did think that the U.S. government was somehow going to, like, try to get $100 million out of Lance Armstrong for his crimes against the uh, U.S. Postal Service. Put him out on the street. Yeah, or like put a lien on everything that he does, which, you know, we can talk about that later, but that's that's kind of a cruel way to go. Uh, but it's over. And now I think a lot of us afterwards were left asking the question, okay, Lance settles for $6.65 million. Uh, did he win or did he lose? Yeah, I think he won a lot, like by a mile. Because five is a lot less than a hundred million. <laughs> I mean, more like moral, one. like moral. Yeah, he probably is not thrilled about paying Floyd's legal fees and you know paying Floyd some money. But yeah, Floyd gets one point one million out of that five million settlement. I'm sure he's happy to keep his house, like houses. You know, that's that's nice for him. Yeah, he's. I mean, uh, what was the uh, the the report on his net worth a few years ago? One hundred twenty five million or so. Mm-hmm. It's not that much in the grand scheme of things for him financially. Clearly, a big win for for Lance. Uh, well, yeah, the, the the jury's out on whether or not it's a win for him from a from a publicity PR standpoint. Uh, but I think probably at the end of the day, the people who like him will continue to like him, and I don't know if it'll change any minds among those who kind of vilify him. 
Yeah, I'm with you guys. I think this is a huge win for him, especially since what he was facing was a catastrophic amount of money that he would owe. You know, earlier this year, I guess it was last year, there was, did you guys follow the case with Gawker being sued by Hulk Hogan, being funded by Peter Thiel? And it was this absurd $140 million um, judgment that came down, which effectively put Gawker out of business. But, But not only that, it put... AJ Delario, who was the editor who put the post together that was they were sued for libel or yeah, for libel. And it put him on the hook for the $140 million. And I listened to an interview with him afterwards. And I mean, it was a it was a life altering and a life crushing type settlement. And he, I mean, he's just some guy. He's not a celebrity who has $100 million. And he's just like, all of my accounts have liens on them. I can't borrow money. I can't rent a car. I can't get an apartment. I like, you know, I have these people monitoring how much I can spend. Like he's financially in prison for the rest of his life. And, you know, I, I remember that interview really stuck with me when I started to think about this case with Lance Armstrong, because it was like, you know, look, I've been very critical of Lance Armstrong. Um, I have written critical things about him, but to think about him facing some type of like financial ball and chain around his leg for the rest of his life um, that could potentially, you know, really kind of imprison the guy. And his kids and like people yeah. around him. and yeah. yeah. It just seemed like way too much. I mean, it seemed like a cruel and unusual punishment, even for, you know, the the bad things that he did. So... Well, I think it is a victory for him. I almost feel like had it been a defeat for him, I would it would have changed my perception about the whole thing. I would have thought it was like way too much. That's think, my, that's my take. I think the biggest winner, I mean Lance obviously comes off much better than he could have, but the biggest winner is just the lawyers who make zillions of dollars off of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, 1.6 mil for Floyd's legal fees. So the lawyers that Floyd brought to the table here basically make out about a third of the amount of money that Lance has to pay after five or eight years of a case. So the lawyers are the ones who are really the, the victors, I think, in this uh, in this whole affair. And so afterwards, I think a lot of us were wondering, like, why did this happen? Why did they settle? You know, we had heard buzz in the community going on that, oh, Lance is going to settle, Lance is going to settle. But the, the numbers that were being thrown around were much higher. And so when it was $5 million, it was like, wow, that's pretty low. And there was a really interesting story that was on USA Today to get today where, um, you know, they interviewed Lance's legal team and some other lawyers, and they really traced the 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 settlement sum back to a decision made in 2016 in this case and look i'm i'm simplifying here a lot of this is written in legalese but the federal government's case against lance armstrong was that you know the us postal service had given him given him and his team all this money for sponsorship and um, when he was brought down it gave all of this negative press to the postal service that's one part of it the other part of it was that when it was learned that he had been doping, that made him in breach of contract to the U.S. Postal Service. And, you know, the Postal Service was giving him this money with the implied contract that he would be comp- competing fair. And the big ruling that came down in 2016 from the judge was that, you know, this implied contract that you're competing fair, that's garbage. Um, you know, that's that may be true, but that's not worth be having to pay a hundred million dollars for. You know, yeah, you whatever broke this trust or broke this contract, but that's not an egregious enough offense where they can come at you for three times the amount of money that that you were paid. And so then it was more about the 
U.S. Postal Service trying to show that it had received 100 million, you know, so much harm that it needed to be paid back. And, you know, I don't, you know, I, I studied sports business. I wrote for the Sports Business Journal. I mean, I look at the marketing that went on around the U.S. Postal Service when it sponsored Lance's team, and they got a ton of value out of it. And yeah, they probably got some negative value when he was brought down. But like, I never once heard anyone saying like, oh, well, this is the fault of the post office. Yeah, I'm not going to send this letter to my grandmother through the post office, <laughs> thanks to Lance. I don't, I don't think so, I know anybody that said that. will show him. Yeah. D- that'll show him. DHL for me. Sorry, <laughs> post office. So, you know, there were... There were some things about this case that when I really thought about it, and then the other and the other part of it was that, you know, they were saying that, well, we didn't know the sport was doped. Had we known the sport was doped, we wouldn't have gotten involved in it. And it's like, you didn't know this, wait, wait, who, did you not do your homework, man? Like, come on. I was in this sport for about six months before I knew it was like totally rotten to the core. I still liked it, but like, I just asked a couple people, come on. So... There was a lot that didn't sit right. Again, I've been very critical of Lance Armstrong, but the more and more I thought about this this case, I just thought that it was it was a real weird one. So you think five million is the right amount, or or should it have been a little more? Well, because, I mean, I mean, it's, it's he kind of like he kind of skated one, like just five mil. I mean, is it that's true? Should we, should we, should we say like twenty five or like well, here's maybe the, like a nice like uh, handwritten card to the Andreus, maybe a. Yeah. Uh, a little like uh, a fruit, like one of those edible arrangements, maybe yeah. some edible arrangement to the Andreus. Uh, there's a lot of ways you could say sorry. Well, I think that when it comes to the settlement to the government, I mean, the fact that he actually paid any money, I mean, it's kind of a sign that he blinked, right? Like, yeah, well, he should have paid zero zero dollars. That gets into my question about whether or not it's uh, a moral victory, or 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 whether it's good for his his PR, for his um, you know, for his image. I don't know. It's hard to say, but clearly he's making big moves trying to get involved media, his podcast, etc. So, yeah. But I think he'll keep carrying on. Yeah, my guess is that this settlement represents the proverbial start line gun going off for Lance Armstrong making his grand return to our sport. Comeback 3.0. Comeback 3.0. <laughs> well, presented by Nike. Oh, maybe four, not. 4.0. Uh, yeah, I think this is 4.0. 4. 4. Yeah. 4.0. Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to sponsor this one cuz Nike prize. No. You think US Postal Service would sponsor this one or Well, maybe no. one of those weird no. Chinese shoe companies that sponsors a few of the NBA players and they're trying to break in. Oh, some of the some of the Chinese companies that you see like way in the back left corner at uh, Interbike. Oh, yeah, you know? those guys. Yeah. They're like making blinking lights that go on your mm-hmm. valve covers or yeah, something like un- that. Yeah, unbranded carbon fiber frames. The yeah. Lance Armstrong tour of Guangxi, maybe, in the yes. uh, end of the year. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, I have no doubt that a year from now, um, Lance Armstrong is going to be a fairly major brand in the world of cycling. And... Um, Still is. Yeah. It's true. So, you know, we are... We... It's Lance Armstrong's world again. And we're just... We're just kind of living in it. Uh, guys, before we get to the end here, we need to talk about some tech from Sea Otter. Let's get Dan Cavallari in here to talk about tech. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we were all out at the Sea Otter Classic this past weekend out in Monterey, California. Great bike show. Love Sea Otter. I hadn't been there in 10 years, and it was huge. There were so many different brands and racers and exhibitors. And, you know, Sea Otter is so great for giving us a glimpse of tech, especially in the mountain bike 
and gravel scene because it really has become one of these places where a lot of companies are launching. So to take us through Sea Otter Tech is our very own tech editor, Dan Cavallari. Hello, Dan. Hey, hey. Dan, you got some sun at Sea Otter. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, just a touch. <laughs> I did you, too. Dan has a nice complexion, though. It looks yeah. good on him, unlike myself. And also, I'd say a little bit you too, Fred. We get yeah. a little lobstery. <laughs> well, it's because it didn't tan evenly on me. I didn't have a hat or anything on. And so I have like a red forehead and bags under my... Yeah, I look like... I look terrible. Amateur move. Yeah, mm. totally. Terrible well, let's get to Sea Otter Tech, Dan. Yeah. You know, what are the big macro stories? What are the movements? What are the 30,000-foot view takeaways that you have from this year's Sea Otter? Well, it seems like the three big stories as I saw them was, of course, e-bikes. That seems to be uh, the consistent story across all trade shows that we've been to recently. Uh, they are everywhere. There are batteries everywhere. We saw Bosch. We saw Shimano Steps. We saw Yamaha was there with uh, with e-bikes. High bike. High bike. Yep. I mean, there was it was just everywhere. Uh, so I think while you know e-bikes uh, in the U.S. have been slow to catch on, it's been huge. In Europe, I think it's I think it's coming, and I think it's coming full force uh, to the United States, and that's going to bring up uh, a lot of questions about uh, trail access, uh, especially in the e-bike side, uh, the mountain e-mountain e bike side, of course. Uh, but I think there's a lot of good applications for commuters uh, and and for other user groups that um, that need some assistance. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that's received in the U.S. So that was the big story, I think, uh, at Sea Otter. Uh, from a from a grand perspective, uh, beyond that, I think the Sea Otter show was really all about gravel. Uh, there was all sorts of new stuff uh, in that realm from uh, new uh, concept bikes. Niner Niner showed up with a prototype uh, MCR Magic Carpet Ride, the first uh, full suspension gravel bike that I can think of. I don't know if you guys have seen one before. Yeah, you know, Moots had a soft tail bike, soft tail. I think at uh, Philly Bike Show, right. I want to say, or one of the recent bike shows, which it's kind of debatable whether that's full suspension or not. It right. seems like a pretty good solution, actually, mm -hmm. in my opinion. But mm -hmm. yeah, the Niner, I looked at that as well, Dan, and it was pretty wacky. It's sort of like a miniaturized version of their ordinary full suspension bikes, same sort of linkage, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, proven really well on those mountain bikes. But I mean, on a gravel bike, it's right. a big question mark. They even had a, a customized RockShox RS1 fork that they'd cut down and done all sorts of wacky stuff to get yeah. shorter travel with. And uh, it's a smart PR move, if you think about it. I mean, sometimes brands go like super stealth when they're developing product like this. But I think the other way to do it, which is to just put it right at the front of your booth like that, is is quite bold. And it does uh, get some buzz going. And that makes sense for Niner, given that they were just purchased by the company that own, owns Huffy. And, um, I think they want to prove to everyone that they're still going to be core true to their brand. So there were a lot of like curmudgeon takes going on around this bike. I know I spoke with a number of my friends in the mountain bike world talking about where they see the state of bike racing and bike racing tech going. And all of them brought up the Dually Niner and were like, what is this? This is just like, you know, everything reverts back to mountain biking at some point. You know, why do we, we have these, these tech movements that claim to be moving us in a new direction. And then all of a sudden here we are with like a bike that is basically a dual suspension mountain bike from sort of the early days of dual suspension mountain bikes, not too much travel. I don't know. What do you think about that, Dan? Well, you know, it's funny. I talked to Chris Sugai from Niner and uh, he he said something interesting. He said, you know, people are going to be talking about this good or bad. And so I think 
you're, Spencer's right. And first, first and foremost, that's a great PR move for them. But more importantly, it provides a barometer for what people really want to see out of the gravel scene. And so this is sort of the big splash, right? Everybody's going to have their takes now like, oh, we don't need full suspension gravel. But some people are going to be like, well, maybe we do. Maybe this is good. And then it starts to build. And we've seen that with other technologies. 29er wheels comes to mind, right? We, there was a lot of resistance to 29er wheels and now they're everywhere. And so, you know, do we need a, a gravel full suspension bike? I, maybe not right now, but I bet you somebody's going to see that thing and be like, oh, I know exactly the ride I'm going to do with that. And it's going to be something completely different than what we're seeing now. I mean, maybe there's some guy, you know, Kansas somehow became this gravel gravel mecca all of a sudden. Maybe there's some guy in Tennessee who's like, oh, that's going to be awesome for the type of riding I do. You never know where those trends are going to go. Yeah, I think about like what is the riding condition that is now in between dirt road, rough dirt road where you might have like a lauf or a, tra- you know, a traditional um, gravel bike and then the type of trail riding where you would want a mountain bike. Like where is the sweet niche spot for dually gravel bike? I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd have to guess it's sort of like a Jeep road type thing where it's quite rough and you, you probably couldn't get your average Subaru Outback on it, but maybe you'd want to ride a gravel bike because you've got a whole bunch of other roads to ride after or before you get to that point. I don't know. But is that hardtail territory? It might be. Um, like what's the crossover between dually gravel yeah, bike, old right. school hardtail? Yeah. Well, and it brings up the question, do gravel bikes really even need to exist? I mean, there's there, there's so many other bikes that can do what gravel bikes do. And I think people adapt. They find what, what suits them. Yeah. You know, I think the big argument is just that riding a mountain bike on the road sucks. Yeah. It's really not fun Absolutely. at all. And it's very inefficient when it comes to like the aerodynamics of it, given the front end stack on those mm-hmm. bikes and how wide the bars usually are. And you have to do weird stuff like hey, <clears throat> Leadville 100, mm-hmm. put, <laughs> put narrow bars on those bikes, right? You know, because they realize that a traditional mountain bike position doesn't work well at high speeds, faster stuff. And, uh, yeah, Leadville 100, the original gravel race. Yeah. <laughs> Road gravel. What else, Dan? What else do you see there? A lot of tires. Oh my gosh, there were tires everywhere. It seems everybody is getting into the tire game. Tires uh, are exploding. Yeah. Ha ha. Hot take. Um, Good one. Yeah. So the uh, there's some new names out there like uh, Terravale, uh, which is a QBP brand. They're doing some some gum wall gravel tires that look pretty cool. Fat bike tires, I think, yeah, too. Yeah. Well, some plus tires. Plus tires. And some plus yeah. tires. Uh, and, uh, Terrine, which is not, not brand new, but they've, they've been around a little bit, but not much. They're expanding their line. I had a great Terrine in France a few years ago. <laughs> not like this one. This one's more rubbery. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, Ma- Maxis came out with a new tire. I mean, just tires, tires, tires. Goodyear. Everywhere. Goodyear. Pirelli. Pirelli. And, yeah. uh, that's, I don't think that's uh, a coincidence. You know, we're seeing, uh, I mentioned this last week in the podcast, you know, we're seeing big tire brands come in because I think they can do volume and they're, they're anticipating, uh, the growth of the e-bike population in the U S, uh, and the proliferation of gravel. Uh, it's a, it's a totally a strategic business move. Uh, I don't know what that means for smaller tire manufacturers at this point, but there sure do seem to be a lot cropping up. Uh, a lot of them with their own, you know, tire tread designs and we're doing specifically gravel. We're doing specifically mountain uh, Pirelli is, is, has got a focus on the road. I mean, it's really incredible to see all the new names cropping up. Uh, you couldn't walk more than a few feet without seeing tire brands. Do you see this is something where five years from now, you know, only five or six of these brands will still be in survival. Is there some, um, you know, 
there's a flowering mm-hmm. of tire brands right now, and we may see consolidation or a dying mm-hmm. off at some point. A deflowering? A deflowering. <laughs> Whoa there. A tire deflower. You know, I, I think whenever you see big names like Goodyear and Pirelli come into a market like this, I think that's what they're essentially trying to do is eat market share. And so I think what you'll see is, you know, the, the smaller makers who either aren't marketing well or making mediocre product are going to get you know, forced out pretty quickly, uh, the riffraff will get cut out. But, you know, that's not to say all small companies are making bad tires. That's absolutely not the case. I mean, uh, I think if you're making a good product and you market it well, you're going to find your space. But when a big name like Goodyear comes in with, you know, into the market their first year with 30 SKUs or whatever it is that they have of tires, that's a big threat. And, and I think that's a, that's a big corporate move, essentially, not to dog on Goodyear. I think they're, you know, they're, their tires are good and, and I don't, I have nothing against them, but I think it is a, a market share play because they can sell in volume. They can make those profits off of volume. Probably a lot of OE stuff, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah original yeah. equipment. So if this is the 30,000 foot view, Dan, what are some specific products that you saw that you thought were particularly noteworthy, worth mentioning? Uh, I really liked the uh, Milkit Booster. Uh, which is a, basically it's a kit. It's a metal water bottle that comes with a screw in inflation head. And what you do is you screw that inflation head into your water bottle and you pump it up with a floor pump and it essentially charges it. And then you take it off and then you press it onto your tire valve and it inflates it literally within like a second. It was incredible. It really, the, the amount of pressure that it, it blasted so quickly and the tire seated right up just like that. So you can use this over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a, and you know, they've, they've made it so that you can, you can charge it out on the trail. I don't know that I would ever use it in that way. Like I wouldn't want to carry a metal water bottle on my, my bike, but I would keep it in my truck, you know, and, and I get to the trail and, oh no, my tire is flat and I gotta, you know, it, it's, I think it's a neat little solution. I think people will find interesting and good ways to use this. And uh, Milkit's done a lot of uh, of research into how best to do this. They had a really nifty uh, valve that is actually completely closed off on one on the on the end that goes inside the rim, and it's actually sliced. And so what happens is you can actually put a, a syringe down through your valve, and it goes through this rubber gasket. You can push all your your uh, sealant in, pull it out, and it'll stay inflated. Mm. I bet you that worked really well for you, Fred. You could probably. Uh... Yeah, I'd like to see you try and use this thing. Flat tire Magoo over here. I would end up with so much sealant I in my know. eyes. <laughs> ah! Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I know. The milk at Miracle is what Fred needs. <laughs> what else did you see, Dad? Uh, I saw uh, a really neat uh, pedal from uh, Xpedo. They have a uh, an adjustable Q-factor pedal. Uh, and generally speaking, when you have an adjustable system like that, you need to swap out axles. This one was cool because it actually had like a little quick release cam lever, uh, that was secured down with a, with a bolt so it doesn't move while you're riding. And you can move it in and, in and out. And so you can kind of find your perfect cue. And I think it had something like nine millimeters of play. So that's a big, that's a big thing. Uh, that's a big amount of, of adjustability. I thought that was a really neat, uh, neat idea. I, I haven't tried it, so I don't know, you know, maybe if there's any issues with loosening up or creaking or whatever, but I thought it was a neat concept. And, and just for people who want the simplicity of tossing your pedals on and not having to fidget too much with custom equipment, uh, but you still need to play with your, your cleat position and your foot position and all that. I thought it was a really, really neat little idea. Oh man, I would get so down the weeds with that. My cleat position and I'm all like, 
when you get back on the bike and you just start, you know, like fiddling around with saddle height and stuff like cleat position is the one that I end up fiddling around with way too much. Fred is the only person in the world who wears down his crank arms with the toe of his shoe, yeah, not true. the heel. It is, it is very strange. And all of my cleats get worn down to nubs on one end because my right foot tends to pivot. Yeah. Don't so, ride bikes with me. So, you know, shoe, pedal, crank manufacturers out there, get on it. Mm-hmm. Gotta, I think I've got to make some for Fred that'll solve this problem. Duct tape and like a, I don't know, a wooden platform pedal. That's well, that could be the prototype stage. Um, you know, I saw a bunch of cool stuff out there, Spencer. Did you see some stuff? What What was the coolest product mm. that you were able to see, check out, try? Yeah, I, you know, I really have a soft spot for vintage mountain bikes and specialized. They put out their new stump jumper uh, right ahead of, of Sea Otter and had a full display, their booth. And it was just the coolest thing because they had a 1981 stump jumper head to head with the new one. Same paint colors, same graphics, and the, the new bike looks sweet too. I mean, it's it's your proven specialized horse blank suspension, which I've always found works really well, and it's just a nice kind of middle middle range trail bike, 120 mil travel, 29er. It's, it's a sweet setup in general, but just to me that display really uh, it won me over with the this sort of uh, nostalgia kick. Plus, Ned was there, so Ned you could go there. see yep. some nostalgia and then go just bug Ned. Yeah, I talked to Ned for a bit actually about some of the up and coming stars of specialized really cross country mountain bike team uh, Howard Grotz, Kate Courtney. They both had very strong finishes, both second place in the cross country races. So. Yeah, it's good stuff. I bug Ned about the like old man training advice that he gave Trevor and Chris for some content in the magazine and on the Fast Talk podcast about how he stays fit and like doesn't use power meters no. or you know fancy training methods. And Strava, he right? Uses Strava yeah. and the same climbs and times himself. And I was like, Ned, thank God for you. I, yeah. Whenever I get totally bogged down and like. TSS and I don't know, all the other training lingo that melts my brain. I'm like, well, Ned's still fast and he just pedals his bike. Ned ah. keeps it real. Ned, Ned keeps it real. Um, I saw a lot of cool stuff. I did have the uh, the chance to try the Solos eyewear. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you guys, you everyone has seen Solos eyewear around probably recently. They're smart glasses. Smart glasses. They are sponsoring USA Cycling. They've sponsored Phil Guyman. They've sponsored a number of people. It is the glasses that make you look like you're an assassin from the future. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You're a future assassin sent back to like... Awesome. Kill some evil person and who in the future will do something terrible. Sierra Kana. <laughs> yeah. Or you are me with these glasses on and they beam all of your stats. You know, look, smart glasses are not new. We've been seeing smart glasses pop up for the last few years and I've tried a few of them and the hitch with them what I found was this, the smart glasses beam all your info onto the lens, but the lens has to be the exact perfect distance away from your eyes. And if it's like one millimeter too close or too, too far, you can't see anything. So I like had tried these smart glasses and went over a bump and they shifted on my nose. I couldn't see anything. So what Solos does is they have the um, information appear on its own screen that's independent of the lens. So once you dial that in, you're dialed in. You can like sneeze and take the glasses off or whatever. So it was interesting. You know, I, I want to try them more. I tried them on a ride where I was on a, on a bag, bike path with lots of people and like joggers. And it was not the optimum place to try out having, you know, all of your 
ride metrics beamed in front of you as I was like navigating the Monterey bike path. Yeah, well, but some people are saying that you were the real aggressor, the real animator in the short distance Sea Otter Grand Fondo. Well, it was either me or the guy in the Elliptigo. Oh, yeah. yeah, The Elliptigo guys. So obviously we were not animating hard enough because like the Elliptigo guy was staying in our group. I was like, come on, come on. We got to drop the Elliptigo guy. He was really ambitious though. He was just like, I will not get dropped. I can go just as fast as you. So uh, Solus Eyewear, I don't know. I'm going to have a full review coming later, but I thought it was cool. Like to be yeah. able to see some stuff, some, some metrics, but yeah. What, what, what kind of metrics? Like just speed, time, what? Speed, time, distance. Um, like any power data? Or? I didn't have a power meter on the bike I yeah. was riding, borrowed, but you can, bike, right? you can yeah. get power data and I could see how for training, you know, if you don't want to be looking down your head unit all the time. Well, it must have Strava segments, right? Since Phil Guyman yeah. sponsored, like, I mean, come on. There you go. And it has voice activated stuff. I didn't have that activated either because i gotta figure if something is like talking to me through my glasses at some point i'm gonna throw those glasses into the ocean <laughs> <Boy said. laughs> you can play your tunes though they had bluetooth speaker so oh, sweet after i bailed on the short fondo because it was on bike paths i like you know i cranked some some jams nice climb back up to sea otter so is there an earpiece or just your eye your eyes are just blasting music it has a speaker outside of your ear uh, that that it's like the bluetooth um right, right. ones that don't that, that don't go into your yeah, ear right the bone conduction thing yeah, yeah so it was cool well that was sea otter i mean we have a ton of awesome sea otter content a lot online more coming, yeah a lot more coming i suggest everyone check out the um, tech reviews that Dan and Leonard and Spencer did at Seattle this year because there was a lot of cool stuff. It was a great, great show. Yeah, it was fun. And Dan, you look so tan. <laughs> well, until I pull up my sleeve and then I've got. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it goes, it goes olive, olive mayonnaise. Yeah. So yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, good luck, good luck over there. Uh, okay, Dan. <laughs> thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay, guys, before we get out of here for this weekend, we got to do some what's off the front, what's off the back, what's hot and not in the world of cycling. Who wants to go first? All right. I'm going to say off the front, national champions. You got Bob Youngles winning Liege Best on the Age. You've got at Sea Otter, where I was covering the uh, cross country race, Annika Langvad, the uh, Danish national champion winning the women's race, American champions Howie Gratz, Kate Courtney second in both the men's and women's races, and those two American champions, specialized riders, are heading down to Whiskey 50 this weekend. And I'll be there covering all the mountain bike action from Prescott, Arizona. So stay tuned for that. Awesome. Quick plug. Um, yeah, Spencer's going to be doing all the epic rides, and we expect more second-place finishes. Mm. Maybe a couple wins in there. They're not e-bike races, though. I don't Ooh, think I can true. promise anything if there isn't a motor on my bike. All right. My off-the-front, off-the-rack comes to us from the Tour of the Gila, one of my favorite races uh, that to participate in and cover. Um, we had some great performances down there. Rob Britton, Rally Cycling, won it, as did Katie Hall of uh, UHC. My off-the-front, though, eighth wonder of the world, Chloe Digard owen she, what can't she do when she's not winning Olympic medals and world championships? She lines up for road races and she won two stages. And uh, on one of the stages after she won, she brought a cute little doggy onto the podium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, podium dog is a thing. I think we all need to follow the lead of Chloe Digard Owen and bring cute little doggies onto the podium. Agreed. Yep. Uh, my off the front's going to sort of straddle this weekend. Dane, I haven't done my off the back. Uh, did you do your off the back? 
Oh, I thought I, we were just going to all do off op- the front and then go oh, off the That's why. I like that format. Dane, okay. you do your off yeah, the front. Okay. That'll give me time to think of one. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll straddle the, ra- the racing for this week and I'll go a little bit of Liege, a little bit of uh, the USA and just say Canadians. Rob Britton of Canada at Tour of the Gila and Mike Woods coming in second at Liege. It's a really nice, day to, nice weekend to be a Canadian racer and we hadn't seen a whole lot of Canadian results, uh, you know, at even the podiums, not even wins, but podiums since... I don't know, since I just all retired, it's been a little while. So it's nice to see the return of the Canadians on, on the roadside. Oh, man, it's hotter than Kamloops in June, eh? <laughs> oh, good one. Nice. Yeah, that was good. Um, my off the back is going to be uh, collarbones, especially Marion Voss's mm. collarbone. Because she broke it for a second time now. She broke the last year, too. Broke it at Liège, Bastogne Liège. Needs needs to get it fixed up. She's got a she did surgery. She'll be out for a few weeks. This is a bummer. I mean, multi-time world champion, Olympic champion. Uh, I kind of feel like we're not going to see Voss ever get back to being the dominant rider she was like three or four years ago, which is too bad. I don't know whether how much of it has to do with these uh, collarbone injuries or whatever else and illnesses uh, too, illnesses She's and, and things, yeah. other setbacks. But yeah, stupid collarbone. When you got a break like that, Man. who needs them? Yeah, get rid of him. Uh, my off the back is Gila-centric again, and that is just having to put race expenses on your credit card. Uh, last week, we ran a story about Jack Brennan, the co-founder and race director of Tour of the Gila, who by basically his own will, like triumph of the will, has kept Gila alive over these last few years. You probably have read about the Tour of Gila and its sponsorship woes of the last decade. And Brennan is now, I mean, it's kind of on life support and he is keeping it going. And we did a story about how he put like 10 grand last year on his credit card to keep it afloat. He works for free. Um, he's one of these salt of the earth characters who just loves this project. He came out of retirement to keep it going again. So, you know, it's an off the back of having to put raise expenses on your credit card, but such an off the front for Jack Brennan for keeping the Tour of Gila alive. Uh, my off the back is going to be Team Sky, which uh, could have used some some good racing results to maybe divert the cycling public's attention from the Salbutamol incident. But uh, those have not been they have not been forthcoming. The the Sky Classics campaign was pretty big, pretty big f. I mean, they just didn't really didn't really deliver, and they had a lot of talented guys, particularly for the Ardennes Classics, and they just weren't there. They did, even did a lot of work in the Ardennes Classics early in the race, and then they're. Uh, their Mikov Kwiatkowski's and their Wout Pools's were just kind of falling off the back. So Sergio, hey now! And he was the only one to even be in the top ten in Liège, and that that was like their victory. That was yeah. like the best that they could do. So mm-hmm. not so much of a strong spring yet for Sky, other than that Trano win. So that's a bit different from what we've seen in recent years, where they just kind of crush every race into the tour. Yeah, I think Sky's classics campaign can be best summed up by Gianni Moscone at the top of the Kemmelberg, where he was getting in great position to come around and attack, and then some dude just put him right in the barriers. Oh, Gianni Moscone in the barriers. Yeah, and if if I'm not mistaken, it was a rider on a French team. Hmm. Guy's only got himself to blame for that one. Interesting. Yeah, kind of... Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by Bella News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bella News podcast are those of the individual 
And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Party Classic, Soul Drums. We'll be right back.